Well, in a 2019 article by a University of Louisville law professor named Joanne Sweeney, she describes a surge of new interest among some of the states of our country to remove laws that criminalize adultery and fornication. And even though many times these laws are, are, are rarely invoked, many of them have been on the books for decades, in some cases centuries. Sweeney goes on to discuss some of, some of the reasons why, why haven't all the states kind of gotten on this bandwagon to remove these laws. I mean, after all, many feel these are, these are old-fashioned, these are out of touch, these are puritanical even. And she, she first explains that part of the reason, again, is that these, these laws are, are rarely invoked, and so they're unlikely to be challenged. But then it's interesting, she then goes on to explain that many of these laws have stayed on the books, frankly, because it wouldn't be a good look, quote, for politicians to champion the cause of decriminalizing adultery, decriminalizing fornication. She says, I mean, what sort of politician wants to take that PR hit, right, to, to be the one who champions the cause of lowering the bar, you know, removing the obstacles to our sexual desires? By the way, in our own state, Massachusetts, we've repealed most of the laws, which many of which are, are quite old, uh, related to adultery, but not all of them. And legislators in 2018 tucked in a partial repeal of some of these adultery laws into a reproductive rights bill. And so that's what's happened in our own state. Well, this article was, was kind of further proof to me, as if we even need more proof, that we live in sexually confusing times. Because on, on the one hand, we live in a, a sexually pr- progressive time where there's this impulse to just remove what feels old-fashioned sexually. But on the other hand, as we see in this article, you know, uh, appearing to come against the values of marriage and of, of sexual faithfulness in marriage is just bad PR. And so as I read this, I felt the irony. I felt the, the competing interests of, of our times. And then last week, we had even further proof of this reality. Because we saw that even in the midst of our, our sex-saturated culture, sex-saturated media, the formidable Me Too movement, which, which gratefully has elevated the voices of, of many women who have faced sexual assault. But the Me Too movement saw a significant win in the resignation of a sitting governor, Andrew Cuomo, as he's facing pressure of allegations of sexual assault and sexual indecency. And so again, we live in sexually confused times. But God is not confused. And his law is not up for grabs, as we see it articulated in the scriptures. But when the the boundaries around anything sexual, both both legally and and in the popular opinion of our day, when when those boundaries seem to be ever-shifting, God's law remains clear. The way life and relationships are supposed to work in his kingdom remains clear. And so we're going to explore that a little bit today. 
We look at the seventh commandment today, which prohibits adultery. And our, our roadmap for this morning is similar to what I used last week around murder, if you heard that sermon. But we're first going to look at the letter of the law. What does this mean? What are we talking about? And why did it make God's top ten? Why did it make the Ten Commandments? But then the spirit of the law. And we're going to follow Jesus again where he takes us as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so what is the spirit of the law? What is the heart of the matter according to Jesus? Lastly, we're going to look at the calling of the law. How are we supposed to respond as the people of God? What are we to do? How does Jesus lead us there? Let us first pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us today, your faithfulness to your people over time. God, that is our starting point as we seek to live a life of sexual purity and sexual faithfulness and sexual integrity before you. God, would you help us? Would you guide us? And would you lead us this morning? Would you apply the truth of this word by your Holy Spirit to our hearts? So we ask this in your name. Amen. So the seventh commandment is quite simply a a prohibition against sex with anyone other than the person to whom you are married. So that's rather plain. But the point is that biblically speaking, marriage is a covenant union. It's a covenant commitment between a man and a woman to remain faithful, to remain committed to one another for a lifetime. And so the vows that we say in a wedding ceremony, these are not empty words, but these are the oath of that covenant. And then sex is the seal of that covenant, a representation of the oneness of the covenant of marriage. And so sex done well, sex done God's way, reinforces that commitment, invests in that commitment, renews that commitment, and it reenacts the oneness that marriage is. And so God has provided that beautiful context of marriage for sexual intimacy. And so adultery, what we're talking about today, the offense that we're talking about today is a breaking of what Scripture says is a covenant union. With this in mind, it it makes sense that adultery is is the go-to image, the go-to metaphor for the the people of God's failure to, to uphold their covenant with God. Again, this is all rooted in God's covenant with us. And so as you may know, most of the Old Testament is just this saga of God's people and their inability to uphold the covenant and to obey. And so at various times throughout their history, uh, the Israelites, and, and, and now today in many ways with our own idols, but God's people historically, if, if their faith in, in Yahweh, if their faith in the God of Israel waned at any point, they could just run after Baal or Molech or Dagon or any number of other gods that were appealing to them at the time. But it's exactly that chasing other gods, that chasing other idols, uh, that, that is spiritual adultery. Because God had chosen a people. God had made a commitment to a people. And called them to be committed to him. And so, in spite of uh, 
But as we see, in spite of the people of God, their betrayal, their failure at this, their dropping the ball at this, God never abandons his commitment. He stays faithful. He always calls his people back to himself. And then God went a step further. God knew the waywardness of our hearts. God knew our inability to uphold the law. God knew our idolatry. God knew the condemnation that our sin deserved. And so he established a new covenant with us in the death of Jesus Christ. And so by faith in that, we are brought back into covenant relationship with God. And so spiritually speaking, it all starts here. It all starts with God's commitment to his people, Jesus' love and commitment to his church. And that's where our fidelity in marriage is rooted. And that's critical. But there's also a little pragmatic element to this as well, because in the ancient world and and in our world, marriages and families, these are the fundamental units of our society, of our culture, of our flourishing. And so a breakdown in trust because of infidelity, for example, shakes the foundation, weakens the foundation. And as one writer said, functional marriages lead to functional homes, which tend to require less intervention from the community. So there's a very pragmatic element, too. This is the wisdom of God. God knows what is best for human flourishing and for his people. So there's the spiritual, there's a pragmatic, and so this makes God's top ten. So this is a demonstration of God's love for us. This is God's wisdom in the flourishing of people, the flourishing of society. But then we turn to Jesus. And in Jesus' rearticulation of this law, and in Jesus' explanation of the way life and relationships are to work in his kingdom, Jesus raises the bar on us again. And so we want to turn to the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5. To look at the spirit of the law. What's the heart of the matter? What's the point? Jesus is here gathered and sitting on a a hillside with his disciples close by. The crowds in earshot. Those who have followed him to hear his teaching. And so he says in verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's interesting in this text that that Jesus puts the focus on the man. Because oftentimes in ancient society, in, in ancient Israel, basically in practice, the focus was often on the woman in an act of adultery. Both, both parties by law, by, by Mosaic law, could be liable to the same punishment, but, but it, just, it just seemed to work out that focus was often on the woman. We think, for example, of John chapter 8. You may remember how, how the, a woman caught in adultery was dragged by the teachers of the law, by the Pharisees before Jesus. And they say, Moses' law commands us to stone such a woman. Jesus, what do you say? Read the rest of it for how he brilliantly response to them. But the point is, where's the man in that setting? He's not named. 
He, he may have been in earshot, he may have been close by, but he is not named in the narrative. But the focus here is on the man. Jesus, as we see here, he refers to anyone who looks lustfully at a woman. And so I think it's also fair to say that this word, this message is not for married men, but for all of us to challenge our sexual integrity. And so what is Jesus saying? What, what does he have in mind? What is the next level? Well, what he seems to be talking about is, is someone who, in their looking at another person, desires sexual relations with that person. So we're not talking about the first glance. We're not talking about a passing glance because beauty is to be appreciated. It's okay to find people attractive. It's okay to appreciate that. But what we're talking about, what Jesus seems to be talking about, is the lingering look to awaken sexual desire. The look for the purpose of stirring up sexual desire. The Greek word used for when Jesus says looked lustfully, the Greek verb used there is the same Greek verb in the Greek translation of the 10th commandment, which as you'll hear in a few weeks is do not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's maidservant, manservant, your neighbor's animal. And, and so, so what do we see from that? We see that lust, like coveting, is desiring something for yourself. Desiring to have it for yourself. And at the root of that, as we think about how we regard others, how we look at others, at the root of that is objectifying someone based on their sexual potential. Objectifying someone based on their sexual potential. And so Jesus, as we see, as he's so good at doing is taking us beyond the letter of the law. He's looking at our heart. He is raising the bar. He is challenging us towards pure intentions and desires, and not just actions. But friends, there's another type of sexual struggle. There's another type of struggle for sexual purity in our day and age, which has unique challenges and unique complexities. This type of struggle may not even involve another person in the flesh. This type of struggle may only require a video or an image. If it's just the consumption of media, something on a screen, it may only result in self-sex. What we're talking about is the pervasive use of pornography. Now, for Jesus' hearers, as he gives the Sermon on the Mount, they likely could never have imagined what we're talking about. Access images, videos on a screen. But this is very relevant to our day. This is very relevant to our discussion on our sexual faithfulness. And pornography, it's unique in many ways. It's, it's unique in its ability to be hidden. It's unique in its immediate availability to us on our devices. It's unique in its addictive qualities as well. That's part of the complexity of those who struggle with this. Pornography, pornography promises us escape. It, it, it promises us easy satisfaction. But then we just find ourselves trapped. We find ourselves in trouble. 
This entrapment degrades intimacy with our spouses, intimacy with others, and that is what is so sad and so damaging about this. It pulls us into our own heads, into our own appetites, and out of real relationship that God has designed. I appreciate what a writer named Lauren Winner has said on the topic in her book, Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. Winner says, Porn turns sex into something simultaneously fantastic and exploitative, removing it from the relational reality of marriage, importing outside standards into the bedroom, and thereby objectifying whatever and living and breathing fleshly person one might later have sex with. Pornography is destructive because it communicates a tacit narrative about physical gratification without saying a thing about how sex really happens. It teaches its clientele expectations that are simply not connected to reality, to real men and women with real bodies, not to mention real souls, hearts, and minds. As I said, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, it's unique in its addictive quality. And in my experiences working with guys and walking with guys who have this type of experience, this type of struggle, those who are seeking freedom from it, the interesting thing is that many of these guys are, are, are godly men. They are bearing a lot of spiritual fruit in their lives. In other words, they're showing the evidence of God's work in their life and God's priority in their life. They are representing Jesus well to people around them. And yet they're stuck. But as experts such as Dr. Ted Roberts point out, most sexual addiction is not about sex. This is about escape. This is about how we've learned to deal with the pain in our lives. It's about escaping feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and worthlessness. And the thing is that as you engage in that cycle with its highs and lows, it just traps you more and takes us further into those same emotions. And so this is not primarily a moral problem. This is a brain problem. And as we experience all those emotions, all the ups and downs of life, for some, pornography is just always there, always beckoning, always seeming to promise something, but only trapping us. But there is hope from this. There is hope for freedom from this. There is hope for freedom from sexual compulsive behavior. But it takes some work. It takes some healing. It takes courage. But God can do it. I've seen him do it. So when Jesus' rearticulation of the law, of the ethics of his kingdom, he raises the bar. He breaks this thing wide open to cut to the core of every single one of us. Whether it's sexually objectifying real people, whether it's the breakdown of intimacy in our marriages that may cause us to look elsewhere, or whether it's addiction, Jesus' challenges our hearts, calls us to purity. So where do we go? Where do we turn? What are we to do? I last want to look at the calling of the law. We pick up in verse 29 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, 
If your right hand causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The point here seems to be that Jesus calls us to take care of this type of sin, to address this type of sin seriously and aggressively. And and obviously, we don't take this literally. Because if we did, what would happen? We would just have a lot of frustrated, lustful people running around, missing hands and eyes. Because the point is that those those measures, these things, this, this hyperbole that Jesus is talking about, those things can't change our heart. They can't purify our heart. But we do work quickly. We work aggressively. We work immediately to root out this sin in our lives. Recently, I was reading to my daughter before bedtime, and we sat in a large uh, gliding armchair, which is where we sometimes read. And my wedding ring is a little, has, it's always been a little oversized, and so I have this tendency to put it in my pocket sometimes. And so as I'm sitting there reading with Julianne, I, I, I hear plunk, and, and it turns out that the ring falls out of my pocket and just falls into the inner recesses of this massive chair. And, you know, it's the end of the day. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm ready to put my daughter to bed and to relax a little bit. And, and so I said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll get to this tomorrow. You know, I didn't want to turn the chair over and get the pliers out and pull the material back and dig around in there to find the ring. But we're not just talking about like a paper clip or, or a penny or something. We're talking about my wedding ring, my white gold wedding ring. And, and furthermore, I look at my wife Laura's reaction and I can tell, okay, this needs immediate attention. So, okay, so we we deferred bedtime a little bit. I flip the chair over, I get the pliers, I pull the material away, and about 15 minutes later, I dug the ring out. But it took some inconvenient effort on my part, but it needed immediate attention. The point is that sometimes our fight for sexual purity, our tending to our hearts is like that. Jesus says, respond quickly. Take care of this. Address this. Root this out of your life. Because he knows that we cannot afford to put this off. He knows that if we do that, we'll just be in trouble. Jesus says, better to enter life missing some things, having to cut some things off, than to let unbridled sexual sin lead us to our destruction. So we embrace the uncomfortable. We embrace confession, repentance. We embrace accountability. We embrace the uncomfortable journey towards freedom. And so what does this look like? Well, this might look like you confessing sin and impure thoughts to a friend or or trusted leader. It might look like you thinking about where and 
how much time you spend with someone and what settings you spend with someone. It may mean an intentional group of people around you to support you and hold you accountable to live a life of purity and to hold you accountable on your journey towards freedom. For married couples among us, it may mean doing the hard work of counseling, of working things out to restore what's been broken, to heal what's been broken. Those things that sometimes cause us to look elsewhere. Well, for any silent strugglers here this morning, particularly as we think about pornography, particularly as we think about compulsive sexual behavior, we as a church would love to help you to find freedom, to help you take a step. And so if that is you this morning, if that is your particular experience this morning, we just invite you to confidentially reach out to us. You can reach out to me by email. You can reach out to Lori Lawless, our Minister of Pastoral Care. And we'd love to connect with you and connect you with some resources. Or, or if you're more comfortable, maybe you want to reach out to a, a trusted small group leader, one of our elders, somebody you trust and respect. By all means, do that too. And we'll point them to some good resources on that journey toward freedom. So Jesus, he does it again. Jesus, he invites us to look at our hearts. And even if in our lives we're unlikely to engage in adultery in a little, literal sense, how are our thoughts? How are our desires? How are we honoring others around us? As we think about this, there's a, a challenge for all of us, whatever our relational status, wherever we are on the spectrum, whatever our experience. Because if we're single, we can pray for marriages. We can pray for faithfulness. We can pray for intimacy. We can help marriages. We can help married couples. If they've got little kids, for example, offer, offer them a night off so they can invest in their bond and their connection. If you're if, if you are married, pray for singles, pray for other married couples, pray for, for all that they may be faithful in their sexual life. Like many of the commandments, this one, and as we see Jesus leading us, this is about honor. This is all about honor. This is about honoring our spouses, and this is about honoring those around us in our world with our thoughts and our behaviors and our actions. And so this is heavy stuff in many ways. The invitation here is challenging. The invitation is heavy and uncomfortable and requires some work, but God, by his spirit, has given us every resource to glorify him in our sexuality and in our marriages. Let us pray. God, we thank you again for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the better word that you speak than what our culture may speak about the gift of sexuality. Lord, help us here. Many of us have brokenness in this area, confusion. Lord, we look to you. We follow you, Lord, wherever you may lead us. I pray for freedom for the addicted. I pray for intimacy for those who are experiencing a broken relationship. Lord, guide us and empower us by your spirit to live faithfully here. In Jesus' name, amen.